So it's so easy to only make spirituality and meditation a mental practice. And whenever I feel stuck, it's usually an indication that I haven't taken my heart with me or that I have dismissed my heart or not given myself permission to feel what's there and turned meditation and spirituality into just a form of mental gymnastics or a lifeless silence. Barrett Zelf is a writer, cheesecake lover, and the voice behind Exhale. He holds certificates in cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness, if you're into that kind of thing. His recent book, Directly Home, is now available everywhere and is linked in the show notes. All right, Barrett Self, welcome to Methods. Thanks, man. I'm happy to be here. We've connected for a while, but I don't think we've ever appeared on any of each other's content other than maybe a story every now and then. Yeah, yeah. I've been connected with you for probably, I don't know, maybe a year or so on Instagram. And first off, I want to say that I'm grateful for how you serve people and how you take spiritual insight that you've gained through um, through your practice and through your study and make it accessible for people, you know, take it down from the, the high shelf that it sometimes gets set on and uh and bringing it to the masses so so i appreciate that um i thought it might be cool for everyone that maybe isn't familiar with you to to get a little bit of background like where you're from how you came to the spiritual path where you're at now sure yeah uh thank you for starters it's been an interesting journey with doing this doing what i do is sharing these insights online i think when i started it was very it was kind of a form of self-expression for me. Um, just learning to talk about something that I had become super passionate about, which had kind of, because it had changed my life. Meditation and more of an Eastern approach to spirituality really shifted a lot of things for me. But my background in general is I grew up in the Southeast United States, uh, very religiously conservative neck of the woods, grew up in a very evangelical home, Took it very seriously, was a very devout Christian, but there came a point where it stopped kind of answering the deeper questions that I had. Mm-hmm. And that happened, I think, mainly at a time when I went to college, which college gets a bad rap in the evangelical community as that's when the devil gets into people. <laughs> I think what actually happens is when you go to college, that's a moment of mental expansion for us. You step out of the box you were raised in. And you see the world's a lot bigger and there are a lot more people and a lot more views and takes on the world than you realized. And the old beliefs can't always come along with you Mm -hmm. as your box grows bigger. So my box definitely grew bigger in college, but I was also super down when I was in college. Uh, And that kind of coincided at the same time with my like belief system and my worldview kind of crashing down. I was also just not in the happiest place Mm -hmm. and just wrestled with you can call it depression or whatever we want, but just wasn't in a good place. And I came eventually to a point in my mid twenties where I just got tired of it. You know, you get beat down enough, you suffer consciously enough. uh, There does start to come some grace through it Mm -hmm. because you get backed into that corner. And if you hadn't gotten backed into that corner, you might not make any change. And I definitely felt like in my mid twenties, I got backed into that corner Mm -hmm. uh, where I just couldn't keep, 
living the way that I was, feeling the way that I was, having the worldview that I had. And so that kind of started me down the journey of exploring meditation, exploring more new age philosophies and approaches, also Eastern approaches. And that led me full circle to what really I feel like did change my life. Uh, ended up writing a book that we'll talk about a little bit directly home. And that's kind of about coming unlearning and coming back full circle to who we actually are mm -hmm. uh, before all that, before the belief systems got into me, before the college experience, before the evangelical experience, yeah. back to the child that I was. It was actually just naturally peaceful and present and happy. Mm -hmm. So so you said those deeper questions weren't being answered. So what deeper questions were you asking that weren't being answered in, in the Christian tradition. Oh man, I got to go back a little ways here. <laughs> I think what really started to happen for me, and this probably won't answer it directly, but what started to happen for me was every time I would open the Bible, having a quiet time or just to read it in general, I started to see very small contradictions mm -hmm. Not necessarily contradictions that are inherently there, but contradictions in the lens I was reading from, mm -hmm. the very fundamental black and white perspective. And for me, those questions are, were really scary. Mm -hmm. And it's a really lonely time. I don't know your background, Jory, if you grew up in that same evangelical kind of upbringing. More or less, yeah. It, it's uh, that starting to question phase is scary, mm -hmm. particularly when you're told eternal damnation mm -hmm. is on the line. Yeah. Uh, and then your whole social circle uh, has these beliefs and you're kind of bucking that trend. And it's really a scary time. As far as specific questions I had that didn't, I didn't feel were being answered I can't, I can't come, I can't remember a specific one. I think, and I think that's less of a reflection of how long it's been and more of a reflection on like, just, it, it wasn't any particular question. Mm -hmm. It wasn't any particular thing about it. It was just. An internal kind of dissonance. The weight. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A lot of cognitive dissonance that just slowly started growing and that you can't, I couldn't live with. Uh, after a certain point. Mm -hmm. You focus uh, a lot on like spiritual practice, like practical spirituality, um, not so much on, you know, the theological or the theoretical or visionary or the imaginative, um, but concrete kind of physical and experiential spirituality that anyone can have access to regardless of their background. I mean, in your book, uh, directly home, you, you use a lot of different sources and everything, but I'm wondering who is it that you draw your inspiration from? Um, you know, the, I think there are different inspirations for different parts of it. Mm -hmm. I think for me, uh, I I've drawn a lot of inspiration from Osho as, as much of a, controversial figure as he's become mainly because Osho had a form of spirituality that felt undeniable to me when I read it, his take and expression on the world 
it 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 melded right perfectly in between the space of logical, analytical, and beauty, art, and poetry. Mm-hmm. And merging those two spaces has been a deep passion of mine. Looking for the truth, earnestly longing for the truth, but also having a deep artistic and expressive side mm-hmm. of me. Growing up, writing poetry, being in a band, always having side projects, creative projects. And then my job ended up being videography, graphic design. So I've always been in the creative space. And there was always something about Osho's ability to to deliver the truth and not just get it into your head, but get it into your heart. Mm -hmm. Rupert Spira, also a big influence of mine, Mm -hmm. but his truths are, are a little more intellectual. They're not as heart penetrative to mm-hmm. me. Osho has it expresses the same and similar truths as a Rupert Spira or even an Eckhart Tolle, uh, but has a way of delivering them that resonates more deeply than just on a mental level. Mm-hmm. And for me, he's been, despite all the flaws and all the controversy with him, his expression, the expression that came through him has been very impactful and inspiring for me as I wrote that book and as I've showed up online to try to find a way to deliver spirituality that is practical, that is embodiable. It's not just theology or abstract, but at the same time, it's got heart in it. It's got some soul to it. Yeah. And it it seems like different spiritual teachers, you know, they speak to us depending on where we're at and, Mm. you know, something that Osho might say to you might not speak to me and something that uh, someone else might speak to me might not speak to you. And so I think what you and I are doing in a way is important because we're taking things that have resonated from our own experience and uh, synthesizing them in a way and, and saying them in a slightly different way that where someone else might not get that from Osho, they might get it from you. You know, it might click when you say it versus they might not ever listen to someone like Osho. So that reminds me, uh, have you heard of the band city in color? Yeah. A, he's a Canadian. Yeah. Canadian D- Dallas green. I, I heard him in an interview, um, several years back, but he was talking about a lot of, a lot of his fans that were there in the beginning aren't necessarily his biggest supporters or fans anymore. Mm. And I'm one of those. I'm not necessarily a big fan or where I was back in the day, but he said something that I thought was super insightful. He said that, you know, when you listen to an album or a particular song, you're in one season of life Mm -hmm. and it speaks to you directly because of the season of life that you're in and where your mind is and where your heart are at that time. And sometimes it's not necessarily that a band or an artist has changed a lot as mm-hmm. they put out more albums. It's that you're no longer in the space that they're in. Mm-hmm. You're in a different place. So you don't hear it the same way. It doesn't resonate the same way. I think there's a lot of that truth when it comes to spiritual teachers. Mm-hmm. Maybe one particular expression really hits me in the core, uh, one particular season of life. But then I come back to it and it doesn't have the same zest because I'm not because it's different, not because necessarily it's any less true, Mm -hmm. but I'm in a different place. So it doesn't impact me that way anymore. Yeah. And I found too that even sometimes teachers that I I got something from at one stage in the journey, 
you come back to years later and it speaks at an entirely different level than, than you too, got man. back then. So yeah, it can work both those ways. What made you want to write this book and, and who, who is the audience? Who is it for? Um, I heard the other day that if you're going to help somebody, it needs to be yourself six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Hmm. Uh, whatever the biggest hurdle that you've been through or particular hurdle that you've crossed, you're helping that past version of yourself go through that and looking back at what's worked for you. So the people that my book and my platform are mainly for are, are people that have an evangelical background, a Christian background, but similarly are looking for a more deeply embodied version of faith and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, Not a form that gets projected into another life or outside of themselves, but something that actually speaks to them where they are, that they can embody and they can live in their relationships and in the world. So my primary audience and my book is for people that do have an evangelical background that have lightly gotten into meditation Mm -hmm but that it hasn't, it hasn't really done the trick. Mm-hmm. Meditation still hasn't led to any sense of real spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I view what I do in my book kind of as a bridge between former evangelicals that have dabbled in meditation and turning that meditation into actually a form of spirituality. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I think that's something that a lot of people are hungry for in in this. There's been this mass exodus from the church, primarily of you know young white evangelicals, um, according to that that Pew Research study. But there's this hunger for that form of embodied spirituality, and that's why so many people are getting into uh, tarot, and so many people are getting into the enneagram and totally. mindfulness and and all sorts of different things. And so, but there's so much out there on the spiritual marketplace, so to speak, that it can, it can be tough for people to figure out which way to go. So what would you say to someone that that's having a, what's it called when, when you, you're at a supermarket and there's like 20 different kinds of tomato sauce analysis paralysis? uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, there's a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of that. I've definitely been there. This sounds a little bit cliche, but I think at the end of the day, it's it's how not just you know if this avenue is right for spirituality or if this teacher or this perspective is right, but it's also how you know if a person's being real and honest with you. And it's just based off of their vibe, man. It's based <laughs> off of their energy. Yeah. Um, and if you have analysis paralysis, uh, I would say two things. One, like tap into the energy of this person. What is the mind behind the words that they're saying? Mm. What is the heart behind the message? It was so easy for me when I first got into spirituality um, outside of the Christian faith to want to, I was a sponge, man. I wanted to absorb every little nuanced detail of every teacher's perspective that ever gave a word. (laughs) 
And what did that end up doing for me? That ended up making me more confused, mm-hmm. less spiritual, more worldly. I had a million teachers in my head. I had no clarity. And that kind of naturally, it, it was beautiful. I'm so glad that it happened because it naturally led me to, okay, this there's a problem here that I'm experiencing. I can't digest all of these details and they're all kind of contradictory. Nobody's take is the exact same, mm-hmm. particularly when it's like enlightenment or talking about consciousness or God. Right. Yeah. So I kind of had to take a step back and I personally went into a season of solitude where I wasn't taking in any message at all, which is also super powerful. But then I, when I came back in, I stopped listening to the details and stop listening so much to the individual points that are being highlighted and more just tuning into the heart and the mind behind the message. Right. That stuff doesn't lie. And that's what you want anyway. You, you don't, what good is knowing some spiritual insight if you're still empty inside, right. if you still are out of touch? So if somebody, if a spiritual teacher or a particular path of spirituality out there is speaking to you, see if their state is something that you want. Mm -hmm. If their state isn't something that you want, you can go ahead and cross them off the list. doesn't matter the marketing or how flashy it is or how insightful they appear to be. Let's talk about that then, because you said having something you want. So I've noticed that a lot of times this can be a great, impetus to, to begin the spiritual path, you know, to see someone embodying what you want to be, some spiritual teacher or some text that talks about a state that you want to be in, one of lasting peace, harmony, bliss, unending, um, complete equanimity, wh- wh- however it's described. But a lot of times it can become sort of like a another tool for the ego to to hit us over the head with to to measure us up you know by creating this false um sense of self that's more of like a spiritual ego rather than you know your typical ego and you know i there's a lot that could be said on that but how how do you say to avoid developing the spiritual ego i think on one hand there is great benefit in reading books and listening to teachers that really give you a flowery version of enlightenment because the more grand it seems, the more inspired you are to go after it. Mm. If, you know, for instance, Buddha's version of enlightenment isn't always dazzling and showering flowers. I think more down the lines in and Buddhist traditions have become a little bit more poetic, but Buddha's, uh, actual enlightenment is pretty clinical, pretty dry. You do this, this is, you're not even there, this, that. It's not, it doesn't exactly get your heart up and out the door necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so for starters, I think that it actually can be helpful to read about Satchitananda, you know, divine bliss, that you are eternally free and that you're always free because that actually can create a deeper devotion in us. Mm-hmm to go after it and to prioritize it above other things. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with that or that we need to shy away from it. 
I think the biggest obstacle towards us realizing those teachings from ourselves is ourself. Um, I don't know if it was, uh, who's the hero's journey guy? Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. I want to say this is a Joseph Campbell quote, but it could be somebody else. Where your heart lies, there lies your treasure. If your heart is really in spirituality and really after enlightenment and really after the spiritual path, if it is truly in it, to me, you get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it is on your totem pole of desires, but it's below a really badass job, it's below how you appear to others, it's below a car and a relationship, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. So... The, the obstacle to me is only your own desire for what you're going after. So the deeper you can be honest about what do you actually want, when you sit down to meditate, what draws your mind out of meditation? What is your mind worshiping? What does it run to? Mm-hmm. That is a great insight. It isn't an insight to be like, okay, that's just a thought, let it go. Mm-hmm. It's a thought, let it go. That can be useful. But if your mind continually runs to the same object and is worshiping the same thought, the same experience, the same pleasure, the same sensual experience, whatever it is, that shows you what is higher on your list than what you're meditating for. Mm -hmm. And until meditation starts to become higher on that list than that particular object that draws you out of meditation, you'll never fully get the benefits of meditation doesn't mean you can't experience peace and have quote unquote spiritual experiences and have a lot of changes relatively in your sense of self, Mm -hmm. but the real deep inner transformation or self-recognition or enlightenment or whatever word we want to throw at it doesn't really start to take hold or happen in our lives until we desire it more than the things of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's an important, important note. I mean, a lot of the, the sages in the Indian tradition say that you have to want it like a, a dying man wants water, you know, mm. or a drowning man wants air. And mm. until it's that most important thing where it, it leads your priorities, not only on the cushion meditating or prioritizing meditation, but in every action I think that we do, you know, whether we're at work or with family or or even just walking the dog, you know, that prioritizing of that self-knowledge and, and rest in that, uh, the spiritual you, right? So th- that's something that I wanted to touch on too, because you use this concept of um, the spiritual you a lot in your book. Because a lot of people talk about this stuff differently, I just wanted to see if you could unpack a little bit what you mean by it. Because I know a lot of people in the spiritual community, um, love this terminology of like the higher self, the Buddha self, the Christ self, and some that don't. And um, so for Christianity and Buddhism and Vedanta, um, a huge part of the spiritual path is releasing that contracted separate sense of self um, as like a separate entity entirely, you know, whether that's in Christianity, it's the, the crucifixion of the self. But I think the fear is that without the surrender of the will, just the the knowledge of an expanded I self, it can let us sneak attachments into that spiritual identity. So 
but other other paths say that you know this awareness this eye sense this idea of an identity at all is one of the most ubiquitous and accessible pointers to the truth because we all have an eye you know we all have a a self so what's your feeling about this this use of this spiritual you do you do you find it helpful uh that reminds me of a question i had when i was on a, a zoom this was like two and a half years ago we were talking about uh neo advaita which is a more modern approach to non-duality or god consciousness mm -hmm. versus traditional advaita which is hinduism and has more of its roots in a lifestyle and you walking the spiritual path and then coming to understand your identity in God and that mm -hmm. God is all that is versus Neo-Advaita, the more modern new age one is just pointing directly at you are God, you are the absolute, you are awareness, everything is formless awareness. Uh, and does that actually work? Mm -hmm. Two and a half years ago, I, I don't remember my exact answer, but I would imagine it would be different than it is today. Um, I do not really feel that that message, the Neo-Advaita newer message works for a lot of people. Yeah. It works if an individual comes ready to surrender. Mm -hmm. If an individual comes ready to surrender, any path, however extreme, works. If the wisdom is being imparted to meet them where they are. Right. But a lot of times, like I just listened to a short lecture by Bentino Massaro the other day. Mm -hmm. And he had a questioner stand up, had the microphone. She clearly was not a long-term meditator, had not been into spirituality for very long, but was drawn to Bentino Massaro. Obviously he has a very grand vision uh, that he promotes. And I agree with him on, on most points that he raises, but I couldn't help as I watched this video to feel a little, a little queasy mm. because this woman with the microphone, her understanding, she was not ready to receive what Bentino Massaro was pointing at. Mm. And to me, it just felt really clear. And when you keep driving and, and as teachers, it's a really delicate balance. But if we keep driving at question the eye, question who you are, mm -hmm. Uh, who is it that's feeling confused right now? Oh, you're feeling confused? Oh, you're sweating? Who is it that's sweating? Is the eye sweating? Like, if you have no foundation right. for that line of questioning, it doesn't take you anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and honestly, it can, be, it can be a real disservice and really psychologically wreck people. Yeah. Because now they're, they're really, I, I mentioned this in my book, how really starting to question your identity and have a mental breakdown for a spiritual seeker is the breakthrough. Mm -hmm. It's what you meditate for. It's what you get into this for, to have a new eye, to have a brand new sense of self, mm -hmm. to get in touch with your Buddhahood or your Christ nature. But if you're not on that path, having a mental breakdown is just having a mental breakdown. <laughs> 
And if you don't know any other identity or you haven't been a long-term meditator, you're not really into spirituality, it can be very dangerous for people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And and I, I do agree that classical Advaita, I think, does a, a way better job of gently guiding people to the truth and um, preparing them in a way that they can hear the teaching rather than just trying to, you know, ram it down your throat. Let's talk about your your book a little bit because you you organize it into three sections. Um, coming home through the breath, coming home through the inner body, and coming home through the mind. Why why those three designations? And and can you kind of give a breakdown of each of them? Yeah. So I was just having a talk with somebody at my my nine to five earlier today. I work in a lab at a local college. I do, I do nothing lab or scientific, but I do the videography for research. And, uh, they were asking me a little bit about the book and I kind of tried to frame it in a way that would meet them where they were. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, this book is about how to touch a deeper sense of peace. And that peace is really the fabric of who we are mm -hmm. underneath our thoughts, underneath our body. This is nothing new for anybody that listens to this podcast. Peace is really the fabric of who we are. I start with my personal journey of discovering that. And then I go through a brief kind of theory or uh, I don't even know this scientific terminology to, to frame this, but my assumption of what is true here mm -hmm. and where I unpack what is the spiritual you and how is it different just from your body? How is it different just from your mind? And then the three chapters of breath, inner body, and mind are actually where we test if those assumptions are true. Mm -hmm. Am I actually different from my, from my body? Am I actually, is there a deeper me beneath my mind? Mm -hmm. So the three chapters coming home through the breath, coming home through the inner body, and coming home through the mind were the three paths that worked for me mm -hmm. on my journey. Uh, and that's not to say they're the only paths. I mean, I've used other paths since then, but they were the three that first started to kind of crack open the door mm -hmm. for me to actually start to experience the peace beneath my thoughts, actually start to experience some separation between me and the narrative. Right. Yeah. I liked, I liked the, simple way that that you that you put a lot of those and the the inner body one struck me because i think the the order that you put them in was different than um how it happened for me for me um the breath was the initial moving into that meditative space connecting the mind and the body and then for me the next step was the mind you know, the mind not being the the locus of awareness, not being like a box to contain awareness. And then the the third step for me was the inner body. And and a lot of that was through um Rupert Spira's uh, yoga meditations. Um and a lot of a lot of what she wrote in that chapter reminded me of of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the inner body stuff was really really key because I'd say I'm I'm a a gyani for, first and foremost, but yeah, me too, me too. My, my thing is that we have to know who we are. You know, we have to know that that happiness and peace that we crave isn't 
an object, right? It's, it's the subject. We just have the wrong idea of who the subject is. And so we have to know who we are. Meditation is super important for that because it helps us to to know it while experiencing it. Where the rubber hits the road is that we don't only know with our brains, right? We know with mm. our bodies, you know, we know with our tactile sensation, our sense of smell, our sense of sight, our sense of hearing and taste. And so working with all of those sense doors and working with the inner body, I think the inner body is a lot of times for people the the last bastion of separation, you know, because totally. it's, it's so subtle, you know, it's, it's very totally. subtle and hard to, we're so disconnected from our bodies nowadays. Mm -hmm. So we can have this intellectual idea of, oh, you know, higher self, uh, indwelling Christ, Buddha nature, and be totally on board with it and think that we're there, but yet we're still acting from a place of separation because we still believe we're, um, localized and habituated within this body that separates us from our environment and from others. Totally. It's a deeply ingrained, uh, felt sense of identity, yeah. the body. And I, I often like to make the distinction. I don't know if, I don't know if this would resonate with you, but I often like to make the distinction between the relative and the ultimate. Mm-hmm. What's relatively true is that I'm my body and I'm my thoughts. I mean, <laughs> I am this vehicle. Uh, and I, I don't think throwing that out for just the ultimate, but particularly, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, particularly for people just getting into it, right? Um, cutting that thread with the body and with the mind, mm -hmm. a lot of damage can be done. And I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, Jory, I, I don't pretend to have no identification left with my body. <laughs> so I, I think it's always helpful to point out there's the relative me. Mm -hmm. There's I'm relatively this body. I'm relatively these thoughts. But there's also a more ultimate dimension of me. Yeah. And the more, even if I haven't completely seen through my identity as this vehicle, if I just have my finger on the pulse of the fact that there is a deeper me mm -hmm. that is independent of the body, even while still believing that I am the body and being in this vehicle, that opens the door for a lot more deep, more deeply embodied relationships, more deeply embodied moment to moment, as opposed to what I think can very easily happen in this space which is it just being theoretical and we don't really realize it. I'm not the body. I have this, it's the spiritual ego. Mm -hmm. I'm not the body, but I just hold that idea in my head. Mm -hmm. I'm not my thoughts, but I also kind of hold that idea in my head. So it's been super pointful, helpful. And what I point to more frequently is that, yeah, relatively you are the body. That's fine. Relatively you are the mind. That's fine. I also think that helps people get in the door. Mm -hmm. that normally wouldn't have gotten in the door mm -hmm. if they're just, if I'm just selling the spiritual worldview, you're not the body, you're not the mind. It helps more people get into the door and then it becomes much more approachable. Okay. Well, nothing's really changed. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have to drastically upend and, and pull the rug out from 
what's been here right now my whole life and and try to see this reality that I can't ever even fathom. Mm-hmm. There's just the relative me. And then, okay, there's the deeper me. Now, how can we, and that's what my book is about, how can we just become aware of the deeper me? Yeah. And then you can take it as far as you want to go. If you want to dissolve complete body association, go for it. Yeah. And so I think that's an important point too, because I think somewhere Ram Dass says that the the trick isn't to um, occupy the the relative truth or the absolute truth, but it's to be able to hold them together. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you have to yeah. you have to be in the astral realm, but you still have to know your social security oh. number. Um, totally, I love that. <laughs> that that reminds me of another Ram Dass moment which I love Ram Dass and uh, Alan Watts mm. were drinking one night. I think they're like in a sanctuary, but they were drinking one night. I don't know if you know this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were talking back and forth. And I think there was a big lull in the conversation and Alan Watts turned to Ram Dass and said, Ram Dass, you know what your problem is? You're too attached to formlessness. <laughs> and that speaks directly to what you're talking about. It isn't just the formless it isn't just the spiritual yeah. it's how is that spiritual embodied in the relative yeah and i think a lot of people try to to search for that formless aspect as if it's another thing you know and and it's not at all because i like the i don't way know how you don't i don't know how you don't jory <laughs> you know? i don't know how you don't well there, there's this story of swami sarvaprinanda tells it where this this child, he's the son of a jeweler, and the father tells the son, go into the safe and get the gold. So he goes to the safe, um, comes back a few minutes later, says, I can't find any gold. And so he says, no, it's in there, I promise. And so he goes back, a few more minutes goes by, comes back, there's, there's no gold in there, I can't find it. And so finally, the father walks him, you know, to the safe and, you know, picks up the necklace, dangles it in front of him. And he said, well, that's a necklace. And he said, yeah, the gold is in the necklace. And and so that's kind of just like a silly metaphor. But I I find myself using that a lot because this idea that the the relative and the absolute are, are two differing stances that, you know, you have to have one foot on the boat and one on the dock and you're going to start mm-hmm. doing a split. Like it's right. not it's not really like that, you know, like there is no gold apart from the necklace, you know? And so the relative, the, the everyday, the mundane, the, the chopping wood, carrying water, that is the absolute, you know, once we can realize it and accept it. Yeah, I, I dude, I could sit here and go back and forth with us telling different uh, <laughs> spiritual stories and parables all day. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so, so what meditation are you going to do for us? So this meditation is actually very close to the inner body practice out of my book. Essentially, when we think of presence, we often think that we get into a mental state of presence and that then we access the state of presence that's here. Then we become more mentally here now. That's even a big mantra, uh, But having a mental state of presence doesn't really necessarily equal presence. What's actually we do in meditation is we become aware of what's already ever present, whether the mind is active or not, whether the mind is non-present, seems to be, is seemingly non-present or not. 
the presence is always there. The mind isn't really going anywhere but this moment. So in this meditation, we wade back into that presence that is beneath our mind, uh, the home beneath our thoughts. And we do so by exploring a little bit of the inner body and then exploring what is actually there. What is actually the sensation and the experience that we're having down there? Cool. That's awesome. Well, I'll uh, append that as a separate episode so everyone can listen to that uh, at their leisure. So before we close, what would you say is the, the number one tip that you could offer someone who either is new to spirituality or, or that has been doing it for a while but might feel stuck? And those might be two different things now that I think about it. But It's so easy to get into spirituality or meditation and only take your mind with you. And it's so easy to make mental progress, but to make no emotional or felt spiritual progress. Mm. It's easy to have an empty mind. It can, you know, maybe it's a complete hellscape to meditate when you start. But if you meditate for a while, you can sit for 30 minutes and have no thoughts and still not be any closer to felt presence, mm. to emotional presence, to spiritual presence or who you deeply are. Because you're still just locked in the mind. The mind is empty, mm -hmm. but you're still just as attached to this. You're no longer the thought, but you're the attention right beneath the thought. Mm -hmm. And the attention is just stuck in this world of lack and doing and it needs and it's still searching for something. And now it's just searching in silence. Mm -hmm. It's just searching in no mind. So it's so easy to only make spirituality and meditation a mental practice and whenever I feel stuck, it's usually an indication that I haven't taken my heart with me mm. or that I have dismissed my heart or not given myself permission to feel what's there and turned meditation and spirituality into just a form of mental gymnastics mm. or a lifeless silence. Right. So if anybody becomes stagnant in meditation, I would encourage them to wade more deeply into their heart. What is their heart actually feeling? Maybe what haven't they given themselves permission to feel? What are they repressing? Maybe they're using a defense mechanism. I often use avoidance. And meditation definitely doesn't help if you unconsciously have a pattern of avoiding traumas and thoughts and things you don't want to think about. But also for somebody just getting started, I mean, it's the same advice get your heart going, man, get, get into it. Bring your heart onto the meditation cushion, bring your heart into your spiritual reading. It's more important to bring your heart into it than it is to bring your intellect into it. Because at the end of the day, you got to let that go anyway. Cool. Well, this was awesome, man. Um, I'm going to put the link for the new book directly home in the show notes. So everyone can pick up a copy. I highly recommend it. Anything else to say, Barrett? beautiful man i'm happy to spend this time always enjoy chatting enjoy chatting one-on-one -on -one. i hope that we can all get together and do another uh instagram live not it wasn't a live it was like a instagram just private group chat yeah um, with scott and with the other guys yeah. i really love that i'd love to get back into that yeah that was fun we'll have to do that again soon <laughs>